Hello and welcome to the Latter-day Saint Mission Cast. I'm your host, Nick Galetti. On this episode, we have our guest again for a third time, Anthony Sweat, professor from BYU. He has a new book out called Seekers Wanted. This is a really important episode, I think, in the the world in which we find ourselves because it represents a challenge that isn't unique to our time, but seems to be particularly strong at this time. And that is the need for people to study the gospel and to seek learning by study and by faith, to develop faith, to encourage faith, to address what a lot of people have talked about is called faith crises. This topic and the things that are brought up by our guest and his book are relevant not only for the missionary themselves who need to study and learn the gospel and come to a sound understanding of it, but also some of the techniques and ways to help other people come to an understanding and learn the gospel in a way that builds faith, which is really what missionary work is all about, teaching the gospel towards covenant-based faith. So here is my interview with Anthony Sweat. For the first time ever, we have a, th- a three-peat on our guests here. Anthony Sweat is going to be another guest on our podcast um, because he's so good. I, I suddenly <laughs> feel like I was just classed with Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan hey, or something. That's that, like that works, man. You're best a three-peat. compliment I've ever had. <laughs> so he's here to talk now about his book that he has come out with, Deseret Book, called Seekers Wanted. And this is an important a uh, book, in my opinion, for missionaries, but for also the people that listen to the podcast that uh, may be dealing with questions of faith or wanting to know how to study the gospel. And I'm going to start out before we get into the interview with a quote that I think puts everything into place to start things out. This is a quote from the very first part of the book Seekers Wanted, and it says, For many saints, the question is not if to seek learning by study and by faith, but knowing how to effectively do so. This is especially true as the tectonic plates of modern society seismically shift beneath our feet, causing many to feel unsteady on their gospel footing in our rapidly changing world. That is is well written, but it also speaks to the challenge that many have, and many missionaries even go on their missions and encounter questions of how do I study the gospel by faith and come to a knowledge of things that can be controversial or just the skill set to do discipleship in study. And so our guest, Anthony Sweat, wrote this book, and he's going he's gonna to teach us how to do this. Well, thank you for having me, Nick. I'm happy to be here again with you. Absolutely. So let's start off kind of with the motivation for you so we can get some context as to why you wrote this book. There's always a motivation. It's yeah. not just contract. So what is, <laughs> what's the reasoning that you, that you put into this book, what, your motivation rather? Well, every, you know, they, there's the saying, every book is autobiography. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, part of this is my journey of myself learning how to gain some of these skills myself, as I've had to uh, have keep my footing uh, as I've grown up in the restoration, but also particularly as a religious educator, I get to literally teach thousands and thousands of, I teach really big classes at Brigham Young University. I deal with thousands and thousands of young adults in the church from all over the nation who come to BYU to study, to seek learning by study and faith. And I watch the things that challenge them. And I want to be clear up front, this book is not a doubt book. I think we've We've run the gamut of doubt books that yeah. um, 
uh, this is a faith book. And what I've noticed is that a lot of students and a lot of members, and myself included, they lack some basic skills to help them know how to seek learning by study and faith as Section 88 of the Doctrine and Covenants tells us to do. So this book is a result of that. It's a, the subtitle is the, the Skills You Need for the Faith You Want. And it's, it's, it's uh, if I could paraphrase Sherry Dew, she tells us it's worth the wrestle. I'm trying to give you some wrestling moves. <laughs> I'm trying to teach you how to wrestle. Yeah, that's awesome. And I want to kind of give the chapter names yeah. so people have an idea of some of the things that this talks about. And as far as skills, it's a three-part book, and the first part being seeking knowledge, and under that is studying church history, evaluating church doctrine, researching church history and doctrine. Part two is seeking truth, and that means interpreting scripture, which is chapter four, embracing ambiguity. Chapter six is discerning truth from error. And part three is seeking holiness, obtaining spiritual gifts, sustaining modern prophets, and inviting the presence of God, which sounds like an echo to the book we talked about when you first came on about the holy invitation. Yeah, it's a... It's a it's a step from the holy invitation. It's, awesome. It's frankly a, a chapter I wish had been included in that book <laughs> that I wanted to include here. Awesome. So let's go more broadly on part one, seeking knowledge. That kind of idea, knowledge itself has different meanings. We were just talking about yeah. this before we got started. So what do you mean when you talk about the word seeking knowledge? Are we talking about seeking facts yeah, and that's a really good question, you know, back to words, that, what do words mean? Yeah. Uh, which is why, you know, part one, part two, part three, I didn't want to just keep it facts uh, and research academic level, which I would say chapter one is that. And frankly, it's some of the most useful. You know, these are the, this is the ones where people say, you know, thank you, I've never known how to do that before. But I didn't want to just only keep it there. So part three, seeking holiness, that's seeking the knowledge of God, of knowing him different than knowledge about him. So if we could say part one is knowledge about things. And, As know, if part, you were studying in a zoo, exi- like yeah, you were looking maybe, in a zoo exhibit yeah, kind part, of idea? Part two and three is moving into truly knowing intimately. Living, living experiencing. Yeah. So when you talk about studying church history— and evaluating church doctrine, researching these things, these are areas that people have found controversy. They have found conflict. We even have our basic doctrines series where we've thrown out a definition of doctrine. It's not the way it's always been used, but you have an expanded use of the word doctrine. What yeah. what is that in this case in, well, in your book? Well, the reason why you know each of these chapters come from issues that, that people face as they seek learning by study and faith. And so sometimes people will say things like, if doctrine never changes, then how come the teachings of the church have changed yeah. on certain subjects? Because they certainly have. Or people will say, well, how come General authority A said this, but general authority B said the exact opposite of this. Yeah. And how do I reconcile that and deal with that? And so within that chapter, um, myself and then two of my colleagues at BYU, Michael McKay and Garrett Dirkmont, we wrote an, an article, and this chapter is a expanded and adapted version based off that article of saying, let's just understand doctrine, how the church has used the word doctrine in the past, and then we provide a model of of different types of doctrine and how to know if something would be a sanctioned church doctrine. 
Okay. So our expanded model of doctrine, the most basic definition of the, the church uses currently is those eternal, unchanging, salvific truths of the plan of salvation. And, and our model would wholeheartedly agree that that is doctrine. We would call that core doctrine. We then have a second level, but we use the word doctrine to mean teaching. Which is what it means. Which is really what the root word of the word yeah. doctrine means, is teaching. So the question I ask myself, when somebody asks me something, is this a church doctrine? What I ask myself is, is this a sanctioned church teaching? So with that, there's core teachings. There are supportive teachings. The third rung uh, is policy teachings. And the fourth rung is esoteric teachings. Uh, esoteric is a fancy word for only partially known or somewhat obscured and reveal, uh, ambiguous or unrevealed. Let me give you an example. Uh, a core teaching would be that uh, ba- you know, baptism, you have to be baptized to be saved. That's core doctrine. But then the next rung is there's supportive teachings that elaborate on the core that, uh, and then there's, that we could elaborate with, with baptism, you know, mm-hmm. maybe, you know, it's death and burial, it's birth and renewal, it's, and then there's policy teachings with baptism. It has to be, you know, you have to say this prayer, which hasn't always stayed the same over history. Right. Did you have to be so old and Or you have to be a certain age or, uh, um, or where the baptism can take place, like baptisms for the dead. And those things shift based off context and time and need. And then there's esoteric teachings. So like things, we know that we can do baptisms for and in behalf of deceased persons, but how those baptisms are presented to them, how they're known, how they're accepted, when they're efficacious, like when they go into effect, that, that's somewhat ambiguous or unrevealed. So uh, that's an example of, we look at, and the reason why that's important is because you'll find over the history of the church, you know, different general authorities will say things like, you know, the doctrine of plural marriage. Yeah. And then, you know, to quote Brigham Young, and then people will be like, well, if doctrine never changes, well, then how can we get rid of plural marriage? Well, in that time, that, that's how they were using the word doctrine. Yeah. And so that's just an example. So that chapter gives you a way of how to approach the word doctrine, how to view it, some models, mm-hmm. and then how do you evaluate whether something would or wouldn't be a sanctioned teaching or doctrine of the church? Yeah. And as far as studying church history, church history is one of those things. And in fact, I, I love the drawing you have. And it's I'm not normally one to praise drawings in books uh, specifically, but you have drawings in the book yeah, that illustrate things book. really well. Yeah, thank um, you. And I hadn't really considered it before, but you have this drawing of a skeleton. Mm-hmm. And muscle. Why yeah. don't you? What, what's what's that? So drawing? one of the biggest things with do, with with history and doctrine, they're they're almost inseparable sometimes, particularly for members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, because our doctrine is often based off our understanding of history. So if if I'm a Protestant, for example, I'm not too concerned with history, the history of Martin Luther or John Wesley or. Um, because their movements were more theological, more idea-based. Whereas Joseph Smith is saying, I went to bed on this night and an angel came to me and I went to this hill and I opened up this rock and pulled out this book. And in these woods, this happened and Peter, James, and John came and <laughs> our, our history informs our doctrine. And so in that visual, I show that history is, is almost like the skeleton upon which the muscles of doctrine move. The skeleton alone doesn't do anything. History doesn't do anything for us. 
But without the skeleton of history, the muscles also don't have the support. You know, we, we can, historical event, a 14-year-old boy goes into a grove of trees to pray about which church he should join. That's a historical event. But from that comes doctrine. There was an apostasy. The father and the son are two different beings. They speak to common people. Authority matters. Authority matters. Yeah. <laughs> Ordinances matter. Yeah. So doctrine now has derived from a historical event. So we have to understand our history in order to understand our doctrine. But this chapter, where the difficulty comes in, is we think history is objective, and history is simply not objective. No. History uh, is made up of sources, and sources are good and bad, and historians are good and bad. And so (laughs) this chapter helps you know how— it's not uncommon for somebody to say— Hey, I heard that Brigham Young blank, or hey, did you know that Joseph Smith? And people are like, oh, really? Yeah. You know, that's like hearing you know somebody make a scientific claim and just believing it. Yeah. You you can't trust a historical source any more than you can trust a scientific claim. You have to know a lot of factors of whether that source is reliable or valid. You know, I had I had a student one time who ran up to me on BYU's campus and just blurted out, "Hey, Professor Sweat." So glad I saw you. It took 10 seconds, and he goes, what's up with Fanny Alger? <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, I heard that Joseph Smith had an affair with a girl named Fanny Alger in a barn, and that, uh, and that Emma saw them, and that then Joseph invented plural marriage to cover up the affair. Yeah. And that could rock that kid's faith in the prophetic mission of Joseph Smith. So the first thing I said to him was, where did you hear that from? And uh, the classic answer today is, I read it on the internet. And I said, what's the source for that? And he had never even thought to ask that question. Yeah. And I said, well, I do know the source of that. That's coming from William McClellan, who was excommunicated twice from the church for adultery himself, by the way, (laughs) who is writing this 30 years after the fact, third hand because he wasn't present. He's saying what he heard somebody else say. So I said to him, so you're going to let your testimony of the prophet Joseph Smith be affected from a singular source, third-hand, late reminiscence from a twice-excommunicated apostate. And he said, well, when you put it that way, it sounds dumb. And I said, well, because it is. Yeah. And, and so this, that, that chapter, for example, it, it gives you, I'm not trying to solve history for you. What I try to do in that chapter is say, here's five things to consider for every historical claim that somebody makes to know whether you should or shouldn't trust whether that's good or bad history. Yeah. Those, I, what are those five? I, I have them. Let me pull, see if I can pull it up. All right. So the five questions to ask about any historical source. Is it a primary source? Which is meaning what? It's primary source is you were a participant, an observer, you were there. Yeah. Is it a contemporary account, meaning someone? Uh, the that, in gen- Contemporary means, in general, the more soon things are recorded, generally, the more accurate it is. The longer time goes on, the more memory gets confounded. Sure. Does it have an objective perspective? Yeah, and, and this is looking at, and nothing's purely objective, but what you're looking for is, does the source have a lot at stake? Is there overt bias? Are they trying to, are they, do they seem to be uh, polemical, one-sided, evasive, defensive? You're looking for things like that. Yeah. What is, it, what is its relationship to other sources? That one's kind of curious. And so with any claim, you want to look at, are there other sources that support that? So in statistics, let's say you have one scientific finding, you want to see, are there other studies that validate or find the same conclusion? 
And the same is in history. If you only have one source claiming one thing, like let me give you a for example, in the first vision, there is one source, it's a late reminiscence, but somebody says, I heard Joseph Smith tell me that God the Father touched his eye in the sacred grove. And then when God touched his eyes, then he saw Jesus. There's only one source that says that, and there's nine other accounts, four of them overseen by Joseph Smith himself, that don't mention a word about God the Father physically touching Joseph Smith. So, for example, using that metric, I that's the only one that claims that. Yeah. I don't rely on it too heavily. Okay. And are its claims supported by evidence? Yeah. What constitutes evidence in this case? And so, evidence is, are there names, dates, people, facts, substance, data behind the claim. Whether we like to believe it or not, we people can give their opinion, they can give hearsay, they can give their bias, their perspective. But using a recent one, I was standing in a class one time and a student said, uh, raised his hand and said, well, I heard that President Monson uh, has dementia. And I said, where did you hear that from? And, and, and the student said, well, I just, I just heard it. And I said, do you have any data or facts? Has the church released any statements? Are there any medical records? Are there anything his doctors have come out? Do you have any data to support it? Or is it just conjecture and hearsay and subjective opinion? And he yeah. said, well, I just think it's subjective opinion. So it's things like that. You have to be careful of that in history. Yeah. You have another picture in here of a car accident where you've got the car accident happening and a person standing there watching the car accident. Yeah. And the two people in the car, you have pointed to like, I don't know if this is like an arrow kind of idea, that each one of the people in the car have a bias. Yeah. The way that they saw what happened. And then you got the person that is observing it that has less bias. Yeah. Generally. Generally speaking. Generally speaking. So this is the question that I have. When you we talk about primary sources, a primary source is going to be very biased. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you how do you take these five things and they're not all equal, you know, as a criteria for evaluating things. So how do you weigh these things? Yeah. Where's the skill set there? And see, and part of what I talk, part of being a good seeker is you don't throw out any historical source, good or bad. What you do is you use these to weigh the degree to which you're going to put stock in them. So I might say, yeah, this is a late reminiscence but it's a contemporary account. It's not overly biased. There's other sources that support it. So I don't care that she or he said it 40 years after the fact. Yeah. Um, or I might say, yeah, this is a primary account by the person who experienced it. So let's take Lucy Mack Smith. You know, she gives us one of the best sources on the description of the breastplate and the Urim and Thummim. But it's very factual. It's very straightforward. She says, this is how big it was. This is it, this is what it felt like. I measured. There was leather straps that were about the width of two of my fingers. I know because I measured it. It had holes here. It looked like it fastened here. It's pretty straightforward. Mm -hmm. It's devoid of um, of language that shows overt bias. Yeah, it's not glorifying. It, it had this hue. Yeah, this flowery language. Yeah. It was just very straightforward. Yeah. Or you take Willard Richards, his account of when Joseph Smith was killed in Carthage jail, it's one of the best contemporary primary sources. He was there. He watched it. He wrote the, he wrote this down two months after it happened. And it's very straightforward. He says, you know, a mob of 150, 250 men, faces planted black at this time, shot Hiram, shot Joseph, wounded John Taylor. It took about two minutes. It, you know, it's very different than 
maybe if you take, you know, a mobster's account of it, who's, you know, saying that rascal Joe Smith, we're going to send him <laughs> to hell with all the devils. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of bias in that account now yeah. all of a sudden. Yeah. So one of the other things that, that this takes us to is this idea with now moving on to part two with seeking truth and interpreting scripture, embracing ambiguity, discerning truth from error. This is a skill that not only we need to develop for our own study, but as teachers of the gospel, we need to make sure that we are helping other people do this very same thing yeah. in their own life. And a third layer to that is to make sure that we are teaching things that don't fall into ambiguity as truth, yeah, as exclusive truth. Yeah. So let's talk about part two, okay. seeking truth. Yeah, what do you want to talk about in there? <laughs> so interpreting scripture, what's the skill in interpreting scripture? So one of the biggest skills in interpreting scripture um, is to understand that, uh, as you know, language is very subjective. Yes. And that uh, the job of scripture is to act as a modern-day Urim and Thummim. It's to be a revelatory tool. It's our only ahona, so to speak. But the, the scriptures themselves aren't the revelation. They are language trying to capture the revelation. Uh, scholar Steve Harper, who's a great historian, said, written revelations are not the revelations themselves. They are but representations captured in our limited language. And that's important as you approach Scripture because what our job, what this chapter does is our job with Scripture study is to turn into mini Joseph Smiths. <laughs> yeah. Um, our all the, job— all that we are all were to be prophets, right? Yeah. Our job is to—and one of the things I love about Joseph Smith uh, is I think if Joseph were here— he would say, yes, please be many prophets. Yeah. I want everybody to experience what I'm experiencing. And Joseph Smith's model, when he translated the Bible, that serves as a model for what you and I are supposed to do with Scripture. You and I are supposed to translate Scripture. We're supposed to look at a word or look at a phrase and break it down and understand that the phrase is simply a limited mortal language. Right. I think Joseph Smith became fascinated with the language of Adam because he felt confined by his own limited language. Right. He called it a narrow, broken, crooked, and scattered, and imperfect pen. Uh, he, he said it was difficult for him to express the divine, which I think we all would. Yeah. So this chapter helps you approach Scripture in that perspective giving you the job to rewrite it, retranslate it in your own language for your understanding. Now, I probably just had to rewrite it, and somebody got nervous out there. <laughs> you and I are not producing Scripture for other people. For, for the masses. We're yeah. trying to write down our interpretation, our understanding. So this chapter shows you some methods to do that, and then how to check your understanding to make sure you're not going off in left field. Yeah. One of the things that I've found that's been interesting about language as, as I do my day job is there's a, there are phrases that we take for granted in English yeah. that mean something totally different in another language based on how they emphasize or whatever. But if you take the, the statement even, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? Yeah. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? Yeah. All the same words that completely have no meaning in written. Totally different meaning. You, you can't understand them in a written text yep. 
because of the emphasis. Yep. So some of the things that we have to understand too are just the limits of the written word. The limits of language. Yeah. Yep. So when we when we have scripture, I I use the thing uh, that that scriptures are both prescriptive and descriptive, and that I like that. S- sometimes it will tell you something in one moment that you'll feel like, hey, this is teaching me something. And other times it's just describing what someone did. It doesn't yeah. mean you have to go do it. Yeah. And having that skill too to understand the difference. Yep. And and trust that that can change. Mm-hmm as you read through the scriptures at different times in your life. That's part of the skills. Yeah. What about embracing yeah. ambiguity? Because that one's, that's pretty heavy. I think that's one of the most important chapters in the book. Yeah. Is the embracing ambiguity chapter. Particularly because, um, so this chapter is all about, we want there to be definitive answers for everything. Um, we want things to be sure and known. And when things are unknown or unsure, we get nervous. Yeah. And we, to be frank, make stuff up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we fill in our We gaps. fill in the blank yeah. because we're uncomfortable with the unknown. The problem is those fill in the blanks to try to get rid of the discomfort that comes from the unknown is what causes false doctrines, false understandings, false beliefs, and false actions. Yeah, abandoning of faith at times. And it becomes hurtful. Some of the problems we've had in the past in church history— have frankly come from people trying to give definitive answers where there aren't definitive answers because they're trying to fill in the gap. So this chapter, I deliberately titled it Embracing Ambiguity, not Tolerating It. (laughs) It's not called Tolerating Ambiguity. Or or Resolving It. Or or Resolving Ambiguity. It's called Embracing Ambiguity uh, because, ironically, when you step back and say, with uh, whatever the, the question is, what is known and what's not known, what is declared and what's undeclared. That actually gives you great freedom to then actually pursue truth and pursue truth more clearly and more carefully. Like a great example is Nephi. You know, the angel or the spirit of the Lord says to Nephi, do you know the condescension of God? And Nephi could have made something up. Oh, yeah, uh, condescension is uh, this and this and this. And all Nephi does is he says... I do not know the meaning of all things, meaning there's things I don't know. Yeah. But I know that God loves his children. And when Nephi says that, it's almost like he says, what I know is I know God loves his children. I don't know what you're getting at with condescension. Then it allows the spirit of the Lord to then teach Nephi more truth. Right. So, uh, for example, things with blacks in the priesthood, polygamy, uh, those are two prime examples where sometimes there's ambiguous things. And so we, we want to fill in the gap with answers that aren't true and we cause more problems than we ever solve. Yeah. So this, this chapter talks about how to avoid doing that and how to move forward when things are ambiguous. Yeah. I'm curious if we should go on to part three or if we should just tease it out and say, <laughs> you've got to read the book. Well, I think... Um, Unless you can tease it. Unless there's a way for you to tease seeking holiness yeah. without giving it away. Yeah. Let, let, I'll, I'll just tease one thing that, you know, if we're seeking answers, if we're seeking facts, uh, if we're seeking knowledge level, but we're not seeking God's presence, uh, we are, we're just, we're just playing on the shallow water. We're, we're nibbling at the food. And so in this chapter, I really... Part three has been the result of things that I really think 
are what seekers should seek the most. For example, things like faith, hope, and charity. Okay. And what those do to somebody's life and how to seek those. Paul says, I could have all knowledge. I could have all abilities. I could have every degree from every Ivy League university. But if I don't have charity, I'm nothing. Why? What is charity? How do I get it? How do I seek it? Why is it so important? Why is it so important? Um, why is it the greatest? Um, that's important. Yeah. Or on this, on the last chapter on inviting the presence of God, uh, what is, let me just tease this. If I pull a random sample of roughly a thousand Latter-day Saints and say, are we living the law of consecration today? I know that I know the statistics because I've pulled over a thousand Latter-day Saints <laughs> and the majority of them don't think we're living the law of consecration. Which is just blows my Which mind. Which blows my mind because it's a covenant of the temple. Temple, yeah. Um, we covenant that we will live and do live the law of consecration. A lot of it comes because of a misunderstanding. It's semantics almost. Yeah. Of what, when I just said the law of consecration, some listener might have been like, oh no, I need to go take everything to my bishop and give him all 230 of my DVDs. <laughs> your bishop doesn't want your 230 DVDs yeah. and neither does the Lord. Consecration is something much deeper. So this chapter, that last chapter, gets into things like consecration, uh, obedience, yeah. sacrifice, what those are, and how somebody seeks to live them in their daily life. I think they're some of the most important chapters in the book. Cool. Have you ever seen the TV show Nailed It? No. It's on Netflix? No. Uh-uh. Okay. I, th- here's your assignment. Okay. So go, go and watch the TV show Nailed It. Okay. The concept of the show, I think, is a metaphor for what you're talking about. Okay. The show is a cooking show and they have three people that come on as contestants. They come onto the show where the panel of judges, well, at least one of them is this master baker and can make these ornate, gorgeous, decorate, you know, just amazing. How did you make that kind of designs and, and cakes? And they show them that they say, here is the end result. Now you try and make it. They then give them a tablet that has very generic directions. Mix the eggs into the batter. Doesn't say how many, things like that, but it's just mix the eggs into the batter. Do this step next. It's not as specific. But these people who have never made this before are then challenged to make the cake that they can see. And it's funny because everybody just falls very short. And, and these creations can look very scary. Yeah, yeah. But they have this opportunity to try and make this cake to emulate the one that's given. And they all fall short, but the winner is the one that gets some of the things the closest. Yeah. And they judge it on looks, taste, different things. Why I say that that seems similar to this is it feels like we, we all know what eggs are. We know what milk, flour, sugar, we know those things. We have come to some understanding of them, but until we actually get in there and make the cake, until we combine these things, we may not know what they all mean, how they all work together to create something. Yeah. And then the next level is not just how we make a batter, but how hot we need to cook it and for how long and all these other things. And eventually what we're trying to emulate is the master baker's creation, knowing that it took him years to get to that point. I think that it seems similar to me Yeah, that we are going to, along the way, make some very ugly cakes. We are going to 
things may even just fall apart on us. But as we continue to try, as we cook more, as we bake more, and we experiment and, and have this ideal in front of us, eventually we can mimic what that cake looks like. It yeah. takes practice. It takes time. And I think that part of your book is giving you the skill set knowing that you're not going to come after finishing this book and have it all figured out. Yeah. You've got to practice it. You've got to take these skills and apply them and use them. And I, I think, Nick, I think, to, no pun intended, you nailed it, brother. <laughs> Thank you. But the reason why I say that is because I deliberately am not trying to answer your questions in this book. I deliberately am not trying to bake the cake, to use your yeah. analogy. What I'm trying to do is give you the skills so you can be a self-sufficient seeker so that you can find the answers yourself, so you can reconcile, you can learn, you can seek, you can find, you can ask. And that is more important than, hey, I've got this one question, this one thing bothers me, answer this for me. Right. Because guess what? Something else will come up and some other question and some other need and some other situation. But if you have the, the skill set um, and if you'll put these into practice, you'll, you'll, you'll start to see that you can, you can use in the metaphor again, I cook in a lot of different kitchens. Yeah. It's funny because I didn't think about this until the metaphor kind of came into play, but sometimes we do live in the, in this Google world uh, where we can just you know get an answer very quick at the click of a mouse, that we are a people, even as members of the church, that we sometimes just want to consume the gospel. And we want other people to bake that cake for us. Yeah, That's the job of the apostles, right? Uh-huh. They just make the best cake. But I think part of what we're talking about— I've always liked Elder Holland's cake. <laughs> it's good Those cake. doctrinal cakes, man. Those but are good. I think part of what they're trying to say is you need to be a baker too. Yeah. You need to, you need to learn how to make the cake. And when you do that, you can have your cake and eat it too, yeah. to use that phrase. Yeah. And so this is teaching us how to be gospel seekers, which is, in the metaphor, how to learn how to bake our cakes. Yeah. And so— I don't want to go into it any further because I want people to read the book. Yeah, I hope they do too. And and I think it's a valuable skill set that not a lot of people either have or want in some ways because they they don't know how to get it. Yeah. They they want to find the truth, but they they feel it's too far away, it's too hard. Yeah. The ambiguity is difficult to to wade through that. Yeah. But I want I I want to share with the listeners that it is possible. Uh, and and I want to share. You'll come out stronger. Yeah. Um. You'll come out stronger in your faith as you gain these skills. And if as members of the restored church, if we are truly truth seekers, uh, which we are, truth truth seekers never stick their head in the sand. And truth seekers don't want to just sleep well at night. You know, if, if our goal is I just want to rest well at night, well, God's going to shake you. Yeah, And you're going to get some knocks by a friend at midnight and some uncomfortable things that jolt you, some, some ambiguous dreams that jolt you awake. Because seeking truth is not easy. It, it requires diligence. It requires patience. It requires persistence. It requires knowledge and intelligence and virtue and faith. It is not easy work. But um, if you will be a seeker, to paraphrase, I— the title of the book actually is borrowed from, with permission, from Stephen Harper. Oh, okay. He gave a talk one time called Seekers Wanted, and I loved it. And in that talk, Stephen Harper said something along the line of um, seeking 
requires patient, persistent effort, but uh, that seekers in the end will always be rewarded, and, and you will. And some of the danger today is that if people don't want to be seekers, they're going to get blown around by the cacophony of noise that's out there today. Yeah. If you don't learn how to seek, the, the challenge of our generation is not to be information finders, it's to be information filterers, it, it's to know how to find truth, to sift down to truth yeah. in the middle of the noise. It, it takes a maturity, I think. Yeah, and, and that's, that's the hope that this book can, for those out there, that it will help give you or a loved one that skill set to help in that process. Yeah. All right, thank you. And I guess, the, again, the book is, is Seekers Wanted. You can find it through DeseretBook.com or at any Deseret Book location. Feel free to check on Amazon as well. I'm sure it's available through that. Um, but thank you again, Anthony Sweat, for so, coming thanks on. Thanks for having me, Nick. Great to be here. Our Michael Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> again, I want to thank our guest, Anthony Sweat, for coming on and talking about his new book, Seekers Wanted. It is available at Deseret Book locations or online at deseretbook.com. Please check it out and take the time to understand how these skills, these tools, can help you not only in your own life, but in the lives of those who you teach. Please stay subscribed to this podcast in iTunes, on Stitcher, or in Spotify. Thanks again for listening to the Latter-day Saint Mission Cast. Mission Cast.